Welcome to Maker Skills, exploring your internal toolkit with PJ, Tanda, and Tom. Welcome back, everyone. We don't typically get political here, but we've decided to talk to about uh, electronics um, because some ronics need to get into. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, uh, electronics. Electronics. That's what we're talking about today. Uh, that is our skill topic. Uh, before we get into it, uh, Tanda, what skill class is electronics? Electronics is a skill class six, VDC. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that sounds about right. It's definitely not AC. Yeah. Now, now normally, this is where I call on Tom to talk about his research, but he never does it. So we're going back to Tanda. Tanda, what did you find in your research? Good choice on electronics. Good choice. Well played. I have, a, I have a, a book that's a really good read about the early days of, of electronics. Some of the topics of the, what people did in the early days where they were uh, experimenting with leaden jars and they would charge them up and then they discovered that they could connect them in series and store a, a huge amount of charge. And they were publishing documents on, uh, on things like, uh, we were able to kill a turkey with it and the meat was far more tender. Or... Uh, you know, someone would uh, put some young lady up on an insulated box and then uh, and then use the equivalent of a Van de Graaff generator to like charge her up and then have people from the audience come give her a kiss. And, you know, people reported getting their teeth blown out and like, you know, really crazy stuff. One of the ones that uh, I, I found interesting was, uh, and I think this was uh, um, Galvani who discovered that if he held a silver spoon on his tongue um, after after kind of charging up, you know, the the surface of it and then and then held another metal object to his eyeball. Now, why you would think to try this, he would see a bright flash in his vision and uh, and it's just full of stuff like that. But it's very refreshing to think that it wasn't that long ago. And many of these people weren't scientists they were just citizens who were really curious you know kind of the makers of their day there's an interesting story of uh, Benjamin Franklin a I think it was a candle maker and a lawyer and there was someone else there were there were four people walking to a bar but they were you know they were just people who were interested and they were doing all of these experiments and and conducting real science and being published, you know, throughout the world. And so it's just interesting to think, what is, what are we doing today? I mean, just as citizen scientists that we could be discovering. The way you describe all this, Tanda, it basically makes them sound like archaic YouTubers. They had no idea what they're doing, very entertaining, limbs were lost, and people laughed. Yeah, yeah. So, today, you know, today's YouTubers that are out there doing crazy stunts might be discovering the next big thing. I'll, I'll, I'll look up the author and the title of the book and give it a shout out in our uh, short and sweet later on. So basically, we're now depending on some YouTuber to solve cold fusion. That's, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, that's how it's going to work. And it's probably going to be made with epoxy resin. Most likely. Yeah, epoxy resin and a cat. Cat dipped in epoxy resin. That's that's obviously that's the way to go. Yeah. Tom. Yeah. What's up? You need me? 
Yeah. So what what did you uh, tell me something that has nothing to do with electronics? What did you find? All right. So <laughs> I just want, first of all, thanks for having me back. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And um, so I have a personal story, uh, a very odd connection to the Hubble family. Do you know Hubble? Mm-hmm. So the Hubble's, uh, it's a it's a large corporation still today, started around the turn of the century, around 1900, by Harvey Hubble II. And he invented a few things, lots of things, but one of the very early things he invented was a pull string light bulb switch, which still exists today. You, you've all owned one at some point. It screws into a light bulb socket and it's got a little pull string on it for another light bulb to go into. And he invented that and basically made it possible for more functionality in a home where, where factories and in industry was using light bulbs before home use because the whole factory was lit up the whole time. Whereas at the home, you don't want to, you can't really unscrew a hot light bulb just to get light in a room whenever you need it. So that was a big innovation that led to uh, more home use. And then he invented another little product that you might be familiar with, uh, the duplex terminal, which is still used by every single person under the sun today uh, in the U.S. No, everywhere. It just uh, looks different in the U.S. But the original one with the two prongs, they used to be in line. They used to be flat how do i say this i'm gonna they, they used to be like this horizontal you see can you just yeah both of them and he turned them parallel to each other well they were parallel before i don't know why they said parallel on the wikipedia page but he made them look like they look today which was kind of a novel thing at the time he has you know hundreds of patents but what i really think caused the hubble name to survive all this time is that i think 1927 I believe 1927 he died and his son uh hubble harvey hubble the third he took over and had all of the same abilities of his father continued to innovate continued to invent and and push the company even further and i think i think that without that second generation i think the hubble name gets bought out and disappears eventually but because of that second life it's uh, I mean, it's right here in Connecticut where I am. The uh, the Hubble the Hubble name still lives on. Oh, why I have anything to do with this? When we moved back to Connecticut, we rented a house from the final heir of the Hubble family. I I don't know his. I don't think he's a junior, so I don't think he's like Harvey Hubble the maybe the seventh, but he's a few generations out, and. Uh, so we rented from him. I learned about all this. Uh, he drives a race car in Florida or something and um, just basically lives off of the inheritance, which is substantial still. They still have a family share in the company, which I think terminates this generation or, or his son will get the final payout from the Hubble Hubble company. So is I this thought that was the same company that makes um, Hubble bubblegum. No, no. Nope, nope, nope. Different, different, different Hubble family altogether. That's, um, that, that, that Hubble didn't carry on. His son was an idiot. And so it was just this really short lived Hubble bubble. And then it went away. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Little, little Hubble bubble. Uh, his name was Jubble. 
uh, Jubble Hubble Bubble. And um, yeah, it was just one generation. There was no Jubble Hubble Bubble the second. So. Sounds German. Yeah, very super German. Well, unlike the two of you who basically researched electricity, um, I, I looked at electronics <laughs> because <laughs> that was our skill topic today. And uh, I think electronics pretty much starts with the circuit board. That's that's uh, everything else is just a wire with electricity at well, that point. You know, the transistor kind of sprung that. Interview. Transistor is way after circuit board. No way. Yeah, way. No. Nah. All right, I'll Google it now and not pay attention while you talk. Okay, so we're gonna go back to the 1920s. Charles Ducasse applied for the first patent for a printed wire board. And back then, they didn't have the ability to do copper, so all of the wires were actually brass that were printed on this plate, and it was done with electroplating. And that was the, the start of circuit boards. And then following that, we come to integrated circuits, which, weirdly enough, this happens sometimes, where two people independent of one another both invent something at the exact same time. The, the first guy was... Jack St. Clair Kirby, 1959, uh, he received his patent for it. Um, however, at the exact same time, there was a guy named Robert Norton Noyce. He was a Noyce guy. Noyce. Noyce guy. <laughs> he, found, he founded a Noyce company that's still around. Yeah. He is the founder of the Fairchild Semiconductor Company, still around. And uh, anyway, he too was granted a patent. Uh, for the integrated circuits. His claim to fame came uh, later on in 1968 when he and Gordon Moore invented in 1971, I'm sorry, he formed Intel in 1968. And then in 1971, they designed the first Intel microprocessor, the, the 4004. I don't know what that is. But anyway, that guy made the, he, he's the Intel guy. Intel guy. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Inter interesting story about the 4004. It was being designed for a, a basically kind of on the side um, as a solution for this Japanese calculator company, if memory serves. And they were looking for a way to um, basically cram all of this electronics into their calculator and someone at Intel, and I can't remember the name, um, was working on this kind of independently because he had this idea that if he could make a chip that could read instructions, it would be much more effective than basically, you know, hardwiring VLSI circuits. If you could make it where it was kind of a programmable um, component, like a bit slice, like would do... Um, have an arithmetic logic unit and so forth. And they ended up okaying it as the deliverable to this Japanese company. But since they were working on, on it for the company, they asked if it was okay if they proceeded with it and patented it. And the Japanese company said, yeah, go ahead. Um, and so they ended up like, I think they ended up heavily discounting it to the Japanese um, for the rights to you know, to keep all of the rights to it, then that became kind of the beginning of Intel's microcomputer, microprocessor, uh, you know, dominance. But it was actually developed for this Japanese company that 
that they basically said, we'll give you a, we'll give you a really good discount if we can keep the rights to it. Smart move. So I didn't know that. That sounds really cool. So moving on, I found some interesting facts about circuit boards. Rigid and flexible circuit boards have been produced in the United States since the mid-1950s. I didn't realize that flexible circuit boards were that old. I thought that they were more of a recent uh, addition to maybe 80s or 90s, but no, mm-hmm. 1950s. I've never found one. I've looked through a lot of old electronics. I've never seen one that was flexible. Uh, I found this kind of interesting. Common printed board materials include Teflon, something called FR4, FR2, don't know what either of those are, poly, oh, good Lord, polyamide, polyamide. Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. weird. Conductive ink and BT epoxy. I don't know what a BT epoxy is. But yeah, there you go. Printed circuit boards are almost always green because they are made from a glass epoxy, which is naturally occurring green. Yeah. Mm. Hmm. And most most modern day circuit boards are green because the uh, solder mask that they use is green. FR FR four is kind of yellow, yellowy tan looking. You can argue with this this website that I found these things on. I, I don't. This is not hurting my feelings. <laughs> Well, no, I'm not. I'm not arguing with you. I'm just pondering. Uh, currently, flexible PCBs are becoming more common than rigid printed circuit boards. Uh, if you're not familiar at all with electricity, uh, PCBs can be damaged by static electricity. So this is why, if you're working on anything electronic, uh, you don't want to have any static charge built up in your body because as soon as you touch the circuit board, it's going to pop something, and then it's not going to work. So uh, the, the, there's several ways to deal with this, but the most common way is to wear an ESD bracelet, which grounds you. And basically that's just like a little snap-on cloth ringlet that goes around your wrist attached to a wire and grounds you so you don't build up a static charge. And then you can work on all the electronics you want. And lastly, in 2014... The revenue for circuit boards and electronic component manufacturing in the United States reached $44 billion, which I found interesting since I think at 2014, we were still having China produce a lot of electronic components. So if you think about how much stuff comes out of China, the United States was still producing $44 billion worth of stuff which means that China was probably doing like 44 trillion or something like there had to be like way higher but that's a lot. That's well, lot. yeah, until recently though. I mean a lot of a lot of US companies that are counting that money are having their product made in China. So it may still look like US revenue but it's being made in China for whoever Intel or AMD or this says component manufactured in the United States. Oh, so wow. I'm assuming that they mean U.S. manufacturing, not not designed yeah. by the U.S. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, the, the number of microcontrollers far exceeds the number of humans on Earth. I mean, by orders of magnitude, which is, which is crazy to think about. I think I did a, I did a, a talk years ago, and at that time, uh, on microcontrollers, and at that time, I think there were the average American home had a hundred 
microcontrollers running code in the average American home. Wow. Which was, which is crazy to think of all that, uh, you know, all of that code running in our devices that we don't even think about. That's a lot. It's time to sell a story. Let me tell you one. The winter tool drought continues. No dealer's corner again, but I do have a good old fun story to tell you back from 2019. A lot of good stories from 2019. My town, I live in a town of 800 people. Every year we have a town-wide yard sale. You know, get as many people in there, sell a bunch of junk. It's a good plan. And this happened to be uh, on June 13th. So June 12th, the night before, I am, you know, actually the whole day, I'm trying to get all of my stuff like stickered and ready to put out for the yard sale. And I look on Facebook Marketplace and I see an ad like two towns over for a Delta 1x42 belt sander with an 8-inch disc. Now, I've been trying to get one of these sanders for close to a year. I've been looking at in, in auctions. I've been trying to get them on Marketplace. And everybody just wanted way too much money. Well, this ad pops up, and it's 50 bucks. So I messaged the guy, and I'm like, hey, would you be interested in a tool trade, or would you take 40 bucks for it? You know, just because, why not? It doesn't hurt to ask. And he's like, oh, I'm trying to get rid of tools. Uh, I'll take it. 40 bucks is good. Just come get it. So I drop everything I'm doing and immediately go over to this guy's place, which is like 20 minutes away, 25 minutes away. And of course, Tom, you're going to love it. His name was Bill. Because, you know. Billy. Just, I love it. Just, just Bill. But, you know. I call him Billy. I get to Bill's place. And uh, the first thing I notice is that he's got one of these driveways that sort of curves from the street all the way around his house to the back of the garage. And the garage is sort of under the house. And the entire, not the entire, let's say 75% of the driveway is full of stuff. Like lots of stuff. Like there's not just garbage cans, but there's like boxes and tool cases and all kinds of things. So I'm like, okay, this is interesting. So I get out. I start talking to the guy. And uh, I, I pay him for the sander. And, but then we just start talking. And it turns out, you know, like I said, his name is Bill. He's originally from New York. He used to be an engineer for the subway until he got blown up. <laughs> There was an explosion. <laughs> he didn't He didn't go into great deal, but he just said, yeah, I got blown up. And um, there was an explosion, and he is on permanent disability for the rest of his life. All of his oh bills, like all his medical bills are paid for until he dies. He's got like, it, basically it's like a pension, but he gets, he gets money coming in forever because he got blown up on the job. And, you know, so I'm like, okay, man, that, that sounds terrible. And he was, he was like, he was having trouble moving. Like you could tell, like whatever had happened, had definitely like messed him up. Uh, but he's, you know, he's telling me he's from New York and I'm like, oh, I lived in Brooklyn three years. And he goes, yeah. And now he's in Pennsylvania. And he's like, I'm so, you know, why are you getting rid of the tools? He's oh, my daughter's getting married. She's moving to New Jersey. I'm like, oh, I grew up in New Jersey. So, you know, we're back and forth, like just bonding and, Eventually, I get around to the stuff in the driveway, 
and I said, I said, hey, Bill, uh, what's all the stuff in the driveway? He goes, oh, my daughter just went through the house, and she, that's, all, that's all the stuff she just threw out. I just told her to just get rid of whatever she doesn't want. And I'm like, what about this toolbox here? And there's a Ryobi blow-molded toolbox. And he goes, oh, everything in there works. I open it up. There's a drill. There's a circular saw. There's a flashlight. There's a charger and a battery. And he goes, the battery's shot, but all the tools are good. I'm like, oh, okay. He goes, you could have that. So I take it. And then he's like, take whatever you want, man. If you see something, just take it. So I start like rummaging around and I find, um, it's a, I think it was like a 12 volt or a 15 volt Makita cordless drill. And he goes, oh, you want that drill? The charger's in the other garbage can next to it. <laughs> <laughs> there was no battery, but I got the drill and charger. And I picked up like a couple other things. And and like I said, I had paid uh, 40 bucks for the sander. So anyway, I, I thanked him. I took all the stuff home and I put the battery on the charger just to see if it would take a charge. And after an hour, it was done and it did charge. The drill worked. And, and these were the older uh, Ryobis that had the, the blue plastic, the better Ryobi in my opinion. But anyway, um, the drill worked. The circular saw worked. The light bulb in the flashlight did not work, but I didn't care. Anyway, um, it was sellable. So I put it out the next day for $35. And within an hour, some guy walks up and he goes, hey, would you take 25 bucks for that? I said, I'll take 30 bucks. You're going to need a new battery. The battery doesn't stay charged for long. He goes, nah, I don't care. It's for my sister. And he gave me 30 bucks and he left. <laughs> nice. So uh, the Delta Sander cost me 10 bucks. And I got a free drill, which is the drill I keep in my truck for, you know, any kind of drilling emergencies. And that is the sander that I still have in my shop today. The uh, This kind of reminded me of, uh, of, of a friend of mine, Bill, where I got a lot of my early electronics equipment, a lot of stash of uh, odds and ends, test equipment. And he was a bargain hunter and would faithfully go to our local electronics auction and would pick up stuff from the military bases and the national labs here and stuff all the time. And almost every project that I did for him had some payment component. I wrote a lot of firmware for their audio video project products. And it was almost always paid for in X amount of dollars and that Tektronics oscilloscope, because I've got three of them now, or X amount of dollars <laughs> and this box of components, because he would buy, if he found a deal where he could buy 10,000 components and get them dirt cheap, he would buy all 10,000 components at some auction or something. And he would just, you know, he had like floor to ceiling components and, and multiples of every kind of equipment. And so... Almost every piece of firmware I wrote for them, and I think I had modified or written firmware for probably 90% of their products at some point, you know, came with money and something I bought at an auction because I had to because it was a great piece of equipment and I just couldn't pass it up. This reminds me of something that just happened today. Uh, this, is, this is, I guess it's kind of an interesting story. And, and of course, this fits right into Tom's name category. The guy's name was Tim. So Timmy, 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 Timmy. So I still have the Grizzly 18 inch bandsaw for sale. 
And this guy named Tim sends me a message today. I have it listed for $12.99. It's not up there, but it, it's up there for a reason, you know, so I could drop the price a little and give somebody a bump and make them feel like they got a good deal. And he goes, is there any wiggle room on the price? And I said, yeah, there's a little wiggle room. What were you thinking? He goes, I was thinking 800 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> I said, you thought wrong. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, uh, I said, I said, the lowest I could drop it is 1100 And he goes, oh, I can't go any higher than 800 That's my limit. And I said, okay, well, do you have anything to trade to make up the difference? You got any, any, anything? And he goes, well, I got a Craftsman drill press and a nine-inch table saw. First, I'm thinking to myself, where is he getting a nine-inch saw blade from? <laughs> Those don't exist. You know, it goes right from ten and a quarter, uh, eight and a quarter to ten inch. There's no nine inch plates. Anyway, I'm like, all right. I said, so how old are the tools? And he said, uh, they're about twenty years old, but neither one of them are really even used. So they're basically like new. And I'm like, yeah, dude, that's that's like at best like a hundred and fifty dollar value. That's that's not really gonna do it. Do you, do you have anything else? And he goes, no. <laughs> And then he just stopped talking. <laughs> Turn, turns but, out it's a, it's a nine-inch wide table with a four-inch blade in it. Probably. But <laughs> I, I love how he opened up the conversation, though. He goes, is there a little wiggle room? Can you drop it $500? <laughs> no. No. Can't do that. Sorry. I don't know which. I love it. Little wiggle room. My, my, my favorite is when they ask, uh, oh, what's the lowest you could take? And my response every time is, what's the most you can pay? <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've gotten in the habit of if anybody immediately responds with a low number, I immediately go up on the price. So like I had some mm. guy for the bandsaw, I had some guy offer me $500, so then I bumped it up to 2000 And he goes, wait a minute, you, <laughs> you, were, you were asking uh, 1200 I said, no, I was actually asking 1299 but I'll take two thousand if that's good. <laughs> he goes, that's not fair. I'm like, oh, how about twelve fifty? Is twelve fifty better? Uh, uh, mm. No. <laughs> I I price things to move a little more than than you do. Like you'll sit on something longer than I than I like to, which is uh, teach their own, right? But I'll price something. Let's say it's um, I don't know your bandsaw, right? I'll price it for eight hundred bucks because I paid four hundred for it, and I just want a quick turnaround. I don't want to store the thing. But I've made the mistake too many times where I'll get a quick message where somebody's like, oh, I'll, I'll pay you, what I say, 800 I'll pay you 700 And I'm like, oh, that's great. This thing's out of here in a day, right? Mm -hmm. I now wait. So when I get that message, I just don't respond. Mm -hmm. I just let it sit there for like an hour or two to see what happens. Because when something's priced too low, you'll get some really good offers really quick. Mm-hmm. And I might only want 800 bucks anyway, um, but it prevents me from locking in that guy and feeling obligated. And then while we're, you know, while we're figuring out how to meet up, he, you know, I get 10 other offers for more money. And that's just, it's such a bummer. A lot of the stuff I price to go quickly, but if I know that I have a high dollar item like the bandsaw, sure. that I will sit on just because it's like an investment. I actually had somebody, um, I had a lady from Brooklyn that contacted me last Monday 
that was supposed to come this Monday to take a look at it, and then she flaked out on me. But she was interested in, she wanted to make payments. She wanted to make three payments to pay off the thing. And I was like, sure, you want to make payments? You give me a deposit? That's no problem. I'll hold it for you. I mean, I, there's no losing for me if I got cash in hand. But she flaked out. PJ layaway? Yeah, why not? It's a big item. But um, most of the stuff I price, it's like really cheap. I don't really, unless it's something like the bandsaw where I don't get a lot of those. That's the first 18-inch bandsaw I've had. So I'm I'm willing to just let it sit there and just kind of wait for the right person. Because my guess is what's going to happen is all these low ballers that keep coming at me, I'm going to find there's going to be one guy. He's going to see it and he's going to go, oh, that's what I've been wanting. $12.99, that's an awesome deal. And he'll just come get it, and he won't even try to haggle me. Because right. that happens all the time with tools. I'll have, I'll have something like a, like a belt sander. Those I sell all the time, and I always get people like, oh, could you, could you take less? I'm like, no. And then somebody will just show up. They won't try to haggle. They'll just take it, and they're happy. They're happy to get it. Right. Yeah, I've turned people away even after they show up, whether they try and negotiate at the, at the pickup. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, somebody else. I got a, I got other messages. It'll sell quick, you know. <laughs> I'm just like, you know, a few times I'll cave and just like knock ten dollars off an item just to give him his win because really ten dollars is irrelevant. But it's so annoying when that happens, though. I'm like, no, I, I'll just go to the next guy. Like, do you think I can't sell this particular thing quickly? That there was there's one specific example where that happened, and it was like two years ago. This guy that was he was just he was just like a fat grease ball. Like he just he was like one of these like shysty car salesman looking dudes with black hair and he looked greasy and he comes over to me and he, like he he picks out like five or six things and then he basically offers me less than half of what I was asking for everything. And I'm like, "No. I'm not going to do that." And he goes, oh, "When you can't sell them, you call me up. I'll come get them." Yeah, yeah. I love that guy. Was his name also a three-letter word that can be turned into a Y ending? Oily. I think it was like Alejandro. It was Joey. Poppy. His name was Poppy. Oily. Greasy. I didn't hear a lot of stories in my day, but I never heard one like that before. Tanda, what is your personal history with electronics? I've never done any electronics. Tom, what is your personal history <laughs> with electronics? Yeah, right. Oh, gosh. Uh, my personal history with electronics, I've always been interested in that stuff growing up. I mean, I was born in the 80s where electronics were just kind of hitting the home. Uh, take that with a grain of salt. Like, I remember getting our first computer. Like, that was my generation. Like, I was five to nine. Five to, I don't know, like 1990-ish. And we got our first home computer. And we sat down, and my dad had us all use the mouse to draw a picture in Microsoft Paint on day one. We all, not to draw a picture, we all wrote our names. Now, granted, I could barely write my name with a pen at this age, whatever age that was, but we all wrote our names because he wanted to see our progress 
with mouse use <laughs> over time. <laughs> and God, I wish we had that actual file still. That would be amazing. But the truth is, it still looks terrible when you try and write your name with a mouse. <laughs> it, it doesn't get any better. But I remember that. Uh, gosh, I still remember it was our old kitchen table that we put in the living room with the computer on it. It was so cool. And we played Minesweeper, which I didn't know how to do because I didn't know what numbers were. And we played Solitaire, which I didn't know because, again, numbers, it's a problem. But, <laughs> you know, I was also that generation that remembers getting a Nintendo for Christmas. Like, that was... Those were huge electronics events for anybody Especially a kid, especially someone right in that pocket of time. Um, you know, also, those were the good old days before they called me a millennial. Uh, that came much later. But, <laughs> you know, and then, you know, growing growing up, I was always interested in that stuff. And I always wanted to take things apart, but you were never allowed to because that stuff was expensive. Like, uh, VCRs were hundreds of dollars back then. And I have very few very few times where I was able to do that, but then I started to get older and, and have access to more of that stuff and built a computer in eighth grade, uh, around eighth grade, uh, what was that fifth, what's eighth grade, 13, 14? I think it was 14. I also, very early on, I got very interested in remote control cars. I just, I thought the idea of that was so awesome. And so cool that you could control this thing. Like, having control of something is cool at a young age. Because you just have no control of anything at that age. But being able to control this thing, and it was a toy, and it was fun. And you could drive it around your house, or drive it around outside. was just so cool to me. And I was just looking for it. I don't know where it is at the moment. But that doesn't matter to listeners. They can't see it anyway. But I recently purchased my very first RC car on ebay and it came with the wrong remote so i i i swapped crystals with another remote i have and it i got it to at least function a little bit but i need to do a gut job and just replace all the electronics in it but it'll be cool to just have that original rc car which just like it's it inspired me for for decades like the idea of of remote control anything uh inspired me for decades which led to was the car that you bought a kit that came pre-assembled or did you actually have to build it, build it yourself? It was a Radio Shack Sorrow Z. T-S-A-U-R-O-Z. Pre-assembled. You can Google it. That's pre-assembled. Yes, of course. Of course. Yeah. No, I didn't realize that there were kits until much later in life. Like, much later. Like, I got into RC cars pretty hard when we moved to Illinois. There was a track near me. I bought a buggy. I bought a short course truck. And these are all kits that you have to basically assemble from scratch, uh, which is the way to go, by the way, if you want to get into a hobby grade RC, is buy a kit that you need to put together. Because when you're driving it, the thing is, every time you go out, it breaks every time, not because of the construction of the vehicle, but you you crash it or you something something rips off of it. And you can basically just like smell what's wrong or, or hear what's wrong and fix it. But if you buy a pre-made kit, you're not going to know what's wrong and you're going to take it apart and it's never getting back together because you just don't have the experience. Does anybody smell cinnamon? I think I blew out a tire. <laughs> mm, that smells like an RC transmission. Did you ever do did you ever do RC cars, PJ? Yes, that was why I was asking Tom. I I can't recall the exact circumstances, but I 
Well, I, I think it transitioned from my father was big into RC planes, and I was great at crashing planes, so then we switched to RC cars, and I the one that I got was a kit, and it was a Subaru Brat, which was a pickup truck. I actually saw one once out in the wild, like a like a real Subaru right. Brat. But anyway, it was a it was a plastic chassis that you had to build, and then you had to put like all the components on the speed controller and the battery holder and all that stuff. And uh, it came the um, okay. So the one that Tom has. Uh, is what we would call uh, a speed rocket. It was it was basically like um, <laughs> it doesn't really look like a car. It just looks like a wheels with a shell. That's kind of a well, shape. Well, it's a buggy. This is a buggy. Right. So it's got open wheels. Yeah, we had uh, did did a lot of RC stuff when I was in college. I actually I, I did an RC helicopter when I was in in high school, and it was kind of funny because I never got an allowance. Um, growing up, it was just like I had my chores and I was supposed to do my chores. And I decided I wanted this RC helicopter at the hobby store in the nearby town. And I just, there were, you know, I, whatever I needed to do to get that RC helicopter, but I didn't have a job. And so I decided I was going to get a job. And so I told my dad, I'm going to, I'm going to get a job so I can buy the RC helicopter. And my dad was like, no, you have too much to do around here. You can't get a job. And at the same time, my stepmom said, well, if, if you if you get a job, I'll match whatever you make toward buying the RC helicopter. Well, at the end of the day, my dad started paying me for stuff I'd been doing for years. <laughs> and my stepmom had agreed to match. And so she kind of begrudgingly matched what my dad was paying me to do the things, you know, to dig ditches and change irrigation water and feed the cows, whatever I was already doing. Um, he started giving me a little bit of money for it. And so that's how I bought my, my RC helicopter. Was it a tethered helicopter? No, it was, uh, it was called a, a Mantis and it was a, uh, it was a gas powered. It was a nitro powered helicopter. Oh, wow. This was back when like the idea of an electric helicopter was laughable. I mean, no one, no one could make an electric helicopter that would get off the ground. We just didn't have batteries and motors that would work. So, so electric, electric helicopter, the early electric helicopters were tethered. That's why I asked if it was a a tethered one, uh, because the batteries were too heavy. Right. And now they have, you know, of course, nice electric helicopters, not even quadcopters, but, you know, or drones, but like traditional helicopters. But at that time it was not possible. So Tanda, was this the model that was like four feet long? Yeah, it was about four. Yeah, about four feet long. Had a belt belt driven tail rotor with a twist yeah. in it. So yep. and a and a little centripetal wow. clutch. Then you, and it had no collective. I don't know if you're familiar with helicopters, but it had no collective pitch. So you couldn't adjust the pitch of the blades. You just revved it up, and when it took off, it it took off, and you controlled it with throttle, not with a collective pitch. And uh, I didn't have any mentors, so it was kind of a disaster. Do you remember what this cost you? <laughs> so, Tom, before we get to that, uh, my father had yeah. one of these. And these helicopters were death traps. Like they, they, like Tanda said, like as soon as you got them off the ground, it was a disaster. Do you remember the fiberglass poles that uh, were available like to put on the back of bicycles? You could put a flag mm-hmm. on them. 
That's yeah. That's what I I got a second helicopter when I was in college, and that's how we train. We did we did the X with the fiberglass poles and and wiffle balls on the ends. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's mm-hmm. what my dad did tennis balls. But yeah, he did like the tic tac toe pattern on the landing gear, and every time he tried to get it off the ground, it would always tilt to one side like it was trying to flop over. And he he tried and tried and tried, and then he basically was like, "Oh no, I'm, I'm, this thing is never going to fly." It was it was a very difficult design um, to actually control with a, like a normal remote control unit, um, so it never really worked compared to like the electric helicopters that are you know processor controlled and monitor their own everything, you know. Um, yeah, the gyro, the gyro changed everything. Yeah, soon after they started putting the gyros in them, and you know, yeah. pretty much would stabilize them, and then you just did control inputs when you wanted it to move, but it would otherwise stay stable. My second helicopter and last helicopter was similar to the first in that it had no no gyros, no you know, control other than the control you were putting into it. And I was getting pretty good at it. I was hovering around and getting reasonably good at it. And I was fascinated by helicopters. So I was kind of reading up on helicopters. Discovered that the collective pitch on a real helicopter, you pull up on your collective. And so I decided, well, if I want to make it more realistic, I'll reverse the throttle so that I pull back on the throttle on the RC controller so that it's more like pulling up on the helicopter. So I reversed that servo. (laughs) thinking for whatever stupid reason that it would be more realistic. Well, the next time I went out to fly, I'm hovering around. I start to get in a little bit of trouble. And so what do I do? I pull back on the stick out of habit. Well, of course, that gives it, that's full throttle. And I'm like 50 feet up in the air, buzzing my friends, flying all over the place, totally out of control. And I ended up kind of skidding in sideways into a uh, into a parking curb out in the parking lot tearing off the landing gear and bending the tail rotor and you know I had saved up a long time as a as a college student to buy it and there was no way I could afford to fix it so it, that was the end of my helicopter days the end of most helicopters so ironically enough uh, I never owned the the one that I talked about was my dad's the only helicopter I ever owned was actually a film prop it was fully functional and it was uh, it's modern it was called a mosquito helicopter, and it was about maybe, mm, let's say, six inches long, and it was pretty much like a little black box that had LED uh, lights coming out the front to make it look like eyes, and it had, you know, like a rotor in the front, rotor in the back, and like little legs instead of landing gear, and it, it looked like a spy helicopter, which is why I bought it, because I put it in my thesis film for film school. And I didn't need, we didn't, because it was, it was basically, you know, it was a toy and it was small. It specifically said on the box, it was for indoor use only. You could not use it outdoors because the winds would just th- totally thrash it. So what we did was <laughs> I made, I made a wire, a coat hanger attachment and then i coated it in uh, chroma green tape and then we just i just chroma greened out like green screened basically the thing that was holding it and every scene that you see the helicopter in is one of my crew members just holding it there while the rotors are spinning so it looks like it's flying 
but it's just somebody just like holding it there and turning it left and right, like it's looking around. And um, and then weirdly enough, I had it, you know, after a, after the I was out of school and everything, I was just, it was just sitting in the box. I sold that I think last year to um, the Rookie Wood Shop. I put it up for sale, and he's like, "Hey, is that helicopter still for sale?" I'm like, "Yeah." He goes, "I'll take it." So I think he has kids, and 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 it's a kid's toy. It was it was perfectly fine. It still still worked, you know, just like it did before. It just I just used it as a prop. But that was that was it. Never had any other helicopter. Yeah, that was that was probably a while after I had kind of started getting into electronics. Um, much like like Tom, I had uh, um, kind of the computer craze, or maybe maybe a wave before Tom's wave of com- personal computers. I had bought a kit from the back of uh, it's probably Radio Electronics magazine to build a Timex Sinclair computer, and so that was some of the first uh, electronics that I ever you know like purchased and and built. I'd played and taken apart electronics, but that was the first thing that I built. Tanda, your timeline is very different because it, from what I know about you, you have always been a very early adopter of things. So you are not the norm. Whereas my timeline, like my family was not an early adopter of computers. Then, you know, 1990 was when a lot of normal people were getting computers. Whereas you... You probably did that 50 years before. That's not an age thing. <laughs> you're, you're saying I'm not, not, not normal. Yeah. 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 You're weird and I like it. No, my family, my family wasn't, I mean, my dad wasn't into electronics at all. And so it yeah. was just something that I, I don't even really know what started it or why I, I just found it interesting. I probably picked up a magazine at some point um, that I thought was interesting and then subscribe mm-hmm. to the magazine and that just you know kind of kept feeding my my interest but it was completely external outside of my family it was just something that i read in magazines or picked up i think of some of the electronic stuff i did um like i hacked our uh, um cable box to get free cable and i logged on to a <laughs> bulletin board system here in albuquerque um, with my, my first modem, which was a 300 baud modem in probably 19, 1981, 1982. And I don't know how I learned that. I mean, I didn't have, there was no access to the internet or whatever. I just read everything I could get my hands on. And it was probably, you know, popular electronics or, you know, radio and, and television stuff. But, I, you know, thinking back, it was like I had no one around that uh, to mentor me or anything. It was just all stuff that I had read and, and tried. But uh, it was it was a little little earlier. I, I had an Apple II. I sold the Timex Sinclair to my literature teacher and got an Apple II. And that was my my first, you know, kind of real desktop computer that I lugged off to college with me. So... Uh, computer, computer wise, uh, I'd say, I think early eighties, uh, was probably the first, uh, introduction. My dad bought a Radio Shack TRS-80, which basically was just a keyboard that you hooked up to a normal television screen. And he bought a book on, I can't remember, I think it was basic. 
and he's he made me learn basic at home it had nothing to do with school and i hated it because the trs80 was a piece of garbage but that was like my introduction uh i, I don't even know I, I can't remember how old i was but it was it was early 80s and then from there it went to like you know commodore 64 um uh i bought i later on bought like an amiga 2000 hd which was with my own money which was a big deal back then but when i think about electronics what i think about is like stuff that you build with circuit boards you know with your own two hands that's that's in my mind that's where i go and for some reason i guess maybe because my dad had an electronics repair shop he was big on building those kind of things so he he wasn't really excited about if like i wanted toys that that wasn't something he was into but if i said oh i want to build a robot he found a robot kit and i built a robot like I'm, I'm not talking about like an arm that moved. I'm talking about like an actual robot that looked like R2D2, but it was it was basically like a can. It had like the Heath uh, kit, the Heath kit robot kits. I think it might have been the Heath kit. Uh, it was like a bucket. Um, it had a mm-hmm. sensor on the front for sensing distance. It could it moved around. It had a control wheel. It spoke. You know, you could program in the name, and um, my my robot's name was Radu, and he would say hello. I am Radu. <laughs> that was, I don't know how the language circuit worked, but he, it was like, you know, a total, like, that's what a robot should sound like kind of a thing. And I remember, I remember building things like, I can't remember if I got the kits from Radio Shack or where they came from, but I knew like the Radio Shack in my town, like I could walk there. It was far, but I could walk there if I want to ride my bike or ride my scooter to get to the Radio Shack. And I remember they had these little kits where it was like, to do a thing, here are all the parts you need. And the one that I remember the most is a um, a door handle alarm. And it was basically a capacitance circuit. So you, you built this circuit, and it had a little PZO alarm on there. And, you know, it was battery operated. And you hung like a, a copper loop on the door handle. So if anybody grabbed the door handle from the opposite side, it changed the capacitance and then it set off the alarm. So it was was a door alarm. And I, you know, I soldered the entire thing together myself. It was a really super simple circuit. But those are the things that I think about when I think about electronics is like I would get these kits that was just all like, you know, 50 parts and it would come with a little schematic. Like I knew how to read schematics before I could do like proper math. You know, like my dad would explain all this stuff to me. I'm like, right. oh, yeah, that's what that part looks like. And that's, you know, so it was like everything was fascinating because I could I could read it was like a map. You read this map and it tells you how to build a thing that turned out to be like something useful. So uh, there was a, a brief moment where I almost didn't go to college and I was going to go to an electronics trade school. And uh, the only reason that I didn't go was because... In high school, I was fencing, and I liked fencing. And as in one of the previous podcasts, I mentioned, you know, World War III was coming, and swords were going to be very important. So I needed to keep fencing so that my skill level was high. And I ended up going to Rutgers because they had a fencing program. And I was going for electrical engineering. Then I went for computer science, both of which had the same math, which I didn't know, and I couldn't do the math anymore. Then I ended up going for marketing. Basically, like each year it changed. Uh, and, and then I just left. 
because I wasn't learning anything and I didn't like it anymore. And I just started, uh, I, I left there and I went to go work basically for, for Xerox, fixing copiers, which is, again, electrical mechanical. Right. Yeah, I had a very a kind of a similar track in that I was, I was quite happy to go off and do some kind of electronics trade school because I was really into electronics and computers. But, uh, you know, the, my my folks kind of insisted that I go to a, a like a four-year college. And so I ended up uh, doing all the electronics, but um, studying computer science, which was, you know, it was a good it was a good field to be starting out in in the early '80s. So that was uh, a similar similar track. So this is going to open up a little bit of a can of worms. It's not really about electronics, but it's sort of tangentially related. So I have a problem with electronics design. I could build anything. You give me a schematic, I could build it. But when it comes to design, I always had a problem because I don't un I understand in, okay, in my mind, electricity is basically like water. It runs through a circuit and uh, when you come when you think about voltage and amperage, you're talking about like how much water, what's the water pressure, and it's it's running through a course. But it never made any sense to me because the the people don't, I guess some people don't realize this, but the electricity runs the circuit and then goes back out. That's why there's two prongs on the plug because it runs, it goes in one plug, runs through and comes back out the other end. So in my mind, I'm thinking, why does electricity running through the circuit make something work. I understand that it works, but it, I, nobody could ever explain to me why it worked. And so because of that fundamental problem, I was never able to properly design something because I couldn't understand, I couldn't get past that one, that one thing. And so I just was relegated to building stuff. I could never design anything because I didn't understand the root purpose or the root uh, function of the electricity which made the electronics run. That, that's, I mean, kind of unrelated, but um, I, I kind of need to understand something before I really engage. <laughs> and so I had courses um, in school where if the teacher was kind of that teacher that just said, that's how it is, you know, you know and, and you're saying, but why? And, and they don't want to explain or can't explain and just say, because, because that's how it is. Because they don't know. And I usually kind of struggled in those classes, not because I couldn't do it, but because I just kind of turned off. And I was like, well, if you can't explain it, I'm not interested. But if, but if the teacher was the sort of teacher that would engage and say, well, let's try and figure it out, then I was all in. Mm -hmm. And it was, just a, it was just a mindset thing. It had nothing to do with whether I could or couldn't. It was just you know, kind of the approach to, to teaching it. And I always found that odd that if I couldn't, uh, if you couldn't tell me why, I don't want to learn from you. So teacher, before, I let me get this in here, Tom. So teacher, talking about poor teachers. When I was going to Rutgers, I had a, I believe she was a Russian woman that was teaching pre-calculus. And she was undoubtedly the worst teacher I've ever had in my life. The class was probably about 25 students. She was trying to explain something. I remember, I'll never forget this day. 
She's trying to explain something. She wrote it all out on the board, and it was completely confusing. Like, I looked around at everybody around me, and everybody was just like, you could see like these glass-eyed looks like they had no idea what she was talking about. And so I raised my hand, and I said, I don't understand what you just explained. It doesn't make any sense to me. Could you explain it in better detail? She made a big huffing sound, and then she erased everything and then put the exact same thing back on the board and didn't explain it any differently. And she, she, she goes, is this better? And I said, no, that's the exact same thing you did 10 minutes ago. And everybody's like sitting there like nodding their heads next to me. This woman, when, when I, took, um, I took a test like, like a few days later, she laughed in my face and she said, no matter how good you do, on final exam, you will not pass this class. <laughs> like, <laughs> you oh, gosh. <laughs> and I find that funny. No, I, I had this funny moment uh, a few days ago at work. I was, uh, um, I don't know, we were talking about uh, in, integrating something, um, some kind of flow sensor or something. And I, and I was like, did you ever do that experiment where you did like a physical integration and to find the area under the curve, you like hooked it up to a chart recorder and plotted it and then cut out the chart and weighed it. And all of these, and all these young engineers are looking at me like, what the hell's a chart recorder? And I was like, oh man, that, that, that you know, we may lose that little, uh, that little trick of, uh, of, you know, that physical sense of what an integral is because everything's digital now. I guess you could count the yeah. number of pixels on your screen <clears throat> under the curve or something. But, uh, you know, I got this strange look like, no, we didn't because we didn't have chart recorders in our in our lab. I want to go back to what PJ brought up and, and like how electric or like how electronics actually work. And I certainly don't understand it, but I have been working on understanding it for a long time. And and I know a lot of things now, but it is still very confusing and magical. Right. It's magic. But it's a, it is like water. It's a flow of electron, electrons, and uh, they go in one direction, and then something uses those electron, electrons and converts it into movement or light or sound or whatever, and then less electrons make it back out. I know that's crude. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. Okay, no, this is perfect. No, I'm glad you... I'm glad you... Mm. What part of that is wrong i know something's wrong what's wrong can you fix my analogy well yeah i think it's good except i don't think the electrons turn into you know the output they don't the, the electrons don't become no right the light or the the sound or whatever no 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 but, of course um but i mean thinking about electricity in terms of a flow of of water is a, a pretty good analogy that that doesn't break down you know too much i mean it it does yeah. it does eventually but it's a really good way of thinking about it i believe sure no and what i mean is like a speaker in a sense converts electrons it's a converter it converts electrons to sound by moving a magnet and a cone and things like that like i know that's crude too but that's what i mean it, it converts something is converting this flow of electricity into something else through a mechanism like a speaker or a light bulb or a what was the other example I gave? I don't know. Right. Um, but what is flowing out? What is 
Think of it like a water wheel, Tom. Okay, so think of it like a water wheel. The electricity is water. The water is turning the water wheel, but it's not like the water wheel isn't using up the water. The water wheel is the result. See what I'm saying? Like, then why do I pay for it? That's exactly my point. Why do? Because okay, this is what I want to get to. <laughs> who who was there? Was a comedian who was it? I think it was. Uh, I, th- I think it was Gallagher. It was like uh, I don't pay my electric bill. I just write him a note and said, haven't seen it all month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like, all right. So wh- electricity is consumed. Is it not? No, it's, I mean, it, uh, the water wheel is a good example. It's, it's, it's raised to a higher potential. Just like if you were to pump water up into a reservoir above the water wheel, right? Mm-hmm. And then you let the water fall across the water wheel. The water is not consumed. But you, yeah. but you recover the energy that you put into raising the water up to the reservoir. Is this where the water analogy breaks down? Because there's a pool at the bottom of the water wheel now. Where, do, where does that go? Well, you, you recharge it. So if you take that water and you, you hook a pump up to it and pump it up to that higher elevation again, then you recharge your battery. You've you've driven those electrons to a higher potential. Okay, a battery is very different. DC and AC are very different. What about in my house? Your house electricity goes back into the ground. That's why you have a grounding rod for every house. So when think of it as positive and negative, the the positive runs through. Or actually, this is where I get a little confused. I used to think it was positive. Now everybody's telling me that the negative runs through and the positive is the exit, which makes no sense to me. Oh, that's that's Ben Franklin's fault. He he deemed that these these things that were moving through um, moved in you know were were something that moved in a direction and he arbitrarily chose a positive and negative right yeah not knowing what electrons even were on a like a you know on a quantum or atomic oh, that's scale crazy and then later we found wow. that the electrons you know flowed toward the negative but we still keep the convention so you'll often hear conventional current flow or electron flow. So so what I was trying to say, Tom, is basically the electricity coming into your house runs a circuit and then it goes out of the house through the grounding rod. That's how it goes back to the power station, through the ground. Is it depleted? No. Well, it's really, it's, with the AC in your home, if you move a magnet past a wire, uh-huh. it will cause an electric current to flow. Okay. And vice versa. So if you wrap a wire, like one of the first things, one of the earliest things I built was just wrapping a wire around a nail right, and hooking it up to a six volt lantern battery to create an electromagnet, right? you know, and made a little crane with it. So if you have an electric current running through a wire, it will create a magnetic field around it. If you have a magnetic field moving past an electric wire, then it will cause a current to flow in the wire. Dang. So at the right. at the generator station, they're basically turning permanent magnets near a wire, to simplify it, to create yeah. a current flow in that wire. And the current flows, because it's a spinning, the current flows one direction and then the other direction. So it's AC. So the current is flowing... In, in one direction every, you know, 60th of a second, and then the other direction. So it's pressure. Wow. Basically, think of it like 
water pressure. Like it's the pressure goes up, the pressure goes down. The pressure goes up. It's like a piston in an engine. Sure. So as far as like a battery is concerned, like this is my analogy for a battery. Because the battery can't ground itself, the circuit just continues from one end of the battery to the other end. The way I look at that is basically it's like pressurized water. So there's a certain amount of pressure. Well, let's let's say amperage, okay? There's a certain amount of amperage in the battery. And it pushes the amount of water out, which is the voltage, through the circuit until all the pressure is gone. And that's when the battery is dead. When it's run out of pressure to push everything through the circuit, then it's it's the electricity really hasn't gone anywhere. It just has run out of oomph. That's, that's you know, mm. in my mind, that's how it works. I don't know in reality <laughs> what's actually happening, but... Well, it's, when, you, when you're charging the battery, you're moving the electrons from one atom to another, essentially. You're doing, you're in an electrochemical battery, then you're changing um, one atom to a positively charged atom and one to a negatively charged atom. So the electrons are collecting in one, in one substance. It never leaves the system. And the other substance is being depleted of electrons. And so then at the negative terminal of your battery, you have an abundance of electrons. And at the positive terminal, you have a lack of electrons. And they can't, and, yeah. and to undo that chemical reaction that you've create that you've set up by charging the battery, if you make a circuit from the positive to negative of the battery, then the electrons can flow back to balance that chemistry. So the electrons flow through the wire and that chemistry basically becomes balanced again, where the atoms that were deficit of an electron gain it back and the ones that you know had a surplus electron. And then to, to charge the battery, you have to... Sure. You have to add you have to add electricity back in to reverse that chemical reaction to use uh, PJ's analogy to kind of pressurize it again. Yeah, I mean I, I would say I understand DC better than I understand AC even though I don't truly understand either. You know, a battery is a battery is just a storage device. It's not creating electricity. It can deliver electricity, but it's you have to put electricity into it essentially. In the form of, in, in the form of the chemistry, right? And I get that different chemistries create different voltages. That's why we have all different kinds of batteries and stuff like that. But man, there's something missing in my brain still. Not in this conversation, just in general. <laughs> Dang it! Uh, <laughs> but it's still it's still very much like raising raising that water up to the higher level. You know, you have to put work in to right. to do it. And so you're just putting work into a chemistry. I mean, you've got you like PJ has his electrolysis tank, right? And he puts electricity into that, and it bubbles away, and it and it changes into this goo that uh, is is a weird color. And so he's actually chemically changing what's in his electrolysis tank. Yeah. Well, there are certain chemistries that if you put electricity into them, then you can what you create by putting electricity in are these. Uh, atoms that that had a nice balanced amount of electrons, two different types of material, and it basically pushes the electrons from one type of material to the other. So now the other has a surplus of electrons. So that's kind of like your reservoir 
up above, and the other one is is lacking the electrons that it had when it was in balance. And then when you create a circuit, then it uh, it flows around the circuit and basically comes back into balance. AC would be to use a water analogy, be more like you have two pistons, you know, two two syringes, if you will, and yeah. you push on one. And it flows through to the other. So then you push on the other and it just keeps flowing back and forth through the tube in between them. And now okay. if you put a, so now let's see if I can create an analogy. So now if you take a water wheel and you put it where the between those two syringes and you make a mechanism in it so that when it pushes one way, it turns and it turns the shaft. But then it's like a, say it's like a ratchet, right? So then when it yeah. pushes the yeah, other yeah, yeah, yeah. way, it just freewheels. And then when you push it, it's like a ratchet and it turns. Okay. And then the other way, it just freewheels. That, that's, a, a, that's a mechanical diode. So a ratchet is... is uh, um, does it freewheel? Does it freewheel on the, on the backstroke, so to speak? Or does it also deliver power in the same direction? Well, I mean, it breaks down a little bit, but like a diode, a diode will only let the current flow in one direction. It's more like a check valve, more like a check valve. Fair enough. Okay, cool. So you, you push in one direction and it flows through, you push in the other direction and it just holds like a check valve. Yep. Tom, in my mind, if you're thinking about AC voltage, uh, have you ever watched a washing machine where the agitator will spin one direction and then the other direction, it goes back and forth to toss, well, that's, that's AC current. Versus DC, which mm -hmm. is basically just like a garden hose. You know, it's just, mm -hmm. it's, just it's going right. straight. So, like, yeah. you could never have an AC battery. It's just, it's not possible. Well, I, well, I take that back. I guess if you really wanted one <laughs> and you had some complicated circuitry. You just reverse the leads. You'd have to have something to reverse it constantly. And, and every time you reverse the leads, it's the same as AC. It's just, yeah. you can't reverse them in a nice sinusoidal fashion like a spinning magnet. You'd need some sort of microcontroller to do it at like 60 hertz, you know, to, to make an, an AC battery, which is incredibly complicated versus like a DC battery. If you have a switching power supply. That's probably a thing, though. That's, that's exactly what's happening. So if you have like a UPS, right, it's charging a battery in your UPS. And then if your power goes right. out, it needs to generate AC, and so what it yep. what it does is it basically applies DC in one direction and then it applies DC in the other direction. And so that's a very crude AC waveform if you leave it at that. It's just a square wave. It's on in one direction then on in the other direction. But if you mm -hmm. if you gradually turn on the electronics and turn them off or filter it a great deal you can turn that into something that looks more like a sine wave so your electronics that you're controlling from it are happy. But basically, that's what you're doing with a switching power supply is you're just turning it on and off in opposite directions, and then you're smoothing that waveform to be a, a nicer, smoother waveform than just square on and off. I really enjoy this topic. I've talked to several people about this in depth, people that know what they're talking about like, like you do. And every time, it's such a broad subject that I have learned lots of little bits across the spectrum. And every time I talk to someone, they explain it a little bit different. Not in, like in a good way, mm -hmm. like that's just how they explain it. And certain things start to get connected and bunch up. And, and I, I know that maybe that, I'll, you know, 
I'm at a point where I can utilize my information, but I'm not at a point where I can explain it at all. Uh, even though I, I do on Instagram constantly. I think that, you know, I think it's one of those things like, especially when you get into like semiconductors and how they work at some level, it's all made up, right? I mean, we didn't, we don't really (laughs) see these things going. I mean, I guess with a like scanning tunneling microscope, you kind of, you kind of can. It is magic. But a lot of it is, is we saw the results of it and we came up with this story because humans are really good at, uh, you know, we're like rationalization machines. And so you came up with something that explained what you saw and you come up with your own terms for it and what you call them. And then when you explain it to someone else, you can't, you can't pick it up and show it to them and say, here, hold this in your hand and play with it. And so I think sometimes it takes hearing someone's explanation and then someone else's and someone else's until something kind of clicks Mm -hmm. or until you start seeing all of those overlaps and similarities. And then you go, I get it now. Or you're working on a project or something that is physical and you, you do the experiment and, and, you know, kind of, kind of figure that out. But yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's, I mean, there are a few, there are lots of experiments you can do, but you don't really see it. You see the effects of it. And so you have to get your head around it. Totally agree. Well, second turn, I think it's time for one of them old timey commercial interviews and stuff. Hi, y'all. This is Edna down at Johnson's Hardware. Are you a displaced hacker? Have you gotten away from your electronics bench? Maybe you're stuck in a cubicle writing software? Well, we have just the thing for you. Circuit Sense. A whole line of candles that will remind you of your electronics workbench, and you can burn them right there in your cubicle. We have all of the best scents. We have incendiary insulation, the Dunford diode, blown cap, fume deflux, and smoke and servo. You can mix and match any three of them for just $19.95. If you want, you can also make payments because $1,995 is a little much for a candle. So if you want to break it down and put them on layaway, you're free to do so. Come in and get them today because they won't last long. You'll find us at patreon.com forward slash maker skills. What the heck, Nabbit? I need to get me one of them. Anyone know what street Patreon is on? I need to go. All right, it's time for crossbreeding. Tom, what skill goes well with electronics? I don't know. I mean, soldering, but that's super boring. That's kind of a lame answer. Well, it may be boring, but it's an actual real skill that goes with it. It is. It is. You can't really have electronics but, without soldering. Well, when when you say that, it makes me want to just immediately disagree even though i have nothing to come back with well let's put it this way you couldn't easily have electronics without soldering if you wanted to go through great difficulty i'm sure you could manage something that's like i don't know a circuit board the size of a house that's run with (laughs) wires and wire nuts and physical components but for ease of use uh soldering is probably the best way to go yes i'll go with that certainly easier certainly easier yeah, I mean you could you could have you could have things that are welded. You you could yeah. you could weld things together. But is uh, that is that your answer, Tanda? Is that the skill that goes well with electronics welding? Well, well, welding goes pretty well if it's uh, 
electrical welding, but I was going to say uh, programming because uh, most of the electronics I do have some uh, programming component with them. And that's really been my fascination with electronics or things that uh, electronics that can be programmed to do other things. I've always found it fascinating that there's this little black box that uh, can be made into one of a multitude of different things just by changing the program. For some reason, when you describe it like that, I immediately think about making a child. Like, you make a kid, and the kid could turn out to be anything. It could be a fireman or a president, you know? You have really no control over it. It's like an unprogrammed circuit? I guess that's not like programming at all. It's, it's kind of like a random program. That's, that's how kids are. They're not really, you can't really depend on them to do anything. They do what they want. I guess that's not like it at all. Never mind. <laughs> I had a friend in college. There used to be this contest that was, uh, I think it was in, it was in Byte magazine, or it might have been in Apple, some Apple magazine. You could write up to 256 bytes into one line of machine language code in the, I guess it was in the Apple assembler, on, and they called it one-liners. And he was like, why don't we just write a program to generate all of the possible combinations and run them? And then we'll just like kind of watch the computer and see if it does anything interesting or makes any sound or do anything. <laughs> and brilliant. if it does, then we'll send that in as, as a good one-liner code, you know, because it was any program you could write in it. I mean, that's brilliant. And so then, then we did the math on how long it would actually take. And, and that was ridiculous. 4,000 years later. Yeah. Yeah. So, but uh, it was an interesting idea. But yeah, I, I like, um, I mean, I've always been fascinated with, with firmware, the concept that you can have a piece of electronics and, and then make it into other things. It's like, kind of like my version of, of sculpting or having clay or something. It's just fascinating that you can start with the same, same constituent components and turn them into whatever you can dream up. See, this is interesting. Uh, I'm gonna I'm going with repurposing here because what I do compared to what you just laid out is very different. I don't take something and reprogram it to do a million different things. I will take the guts out of something and just place a new place them into a new body. <laughs> like, you know, because I don't understand a lot of the stuff, I I take the base of a wheelchair scooter. And I put a desk on it, but I didn't change. Like I kept things the same. It's still using the battery it came with. It's still using the control board. This isn't actually true, but this is an example. It's still using the control board and the thumb throttle that all came with that thing. I just changed the shell, right? I do that a lot. The, you were, you Probably reminded me of something I made years ago, um, growing up. That was a, was a fun repurposing. Do you remember those radios that a lot of families had that had kind of the the dial across with all of the AM, FM, shortwave, weather band, whatever? It had like five dials or, you know, five mm-hmm. um, scales across the dial. And they were like a big kind of rectangular kind of leatherette looking case with a handle on the top. Those are transit, uh, transit oceanics. Yeah, if we had we had one of those radios and it wasn't working. It it just it didn't work and the you know some things inside were broken. I took that apart and I took apart a telephone like an old school like 
you know, with the ringer and the, and the bells and everything telephone. And I put the, I rebuilt the telephone inside of that radio. And then instead of having a handset, I had a set of headphones, like the realistic headphones. And I took off one ear and I put the, the microphone, it was actually probably like, a, not, it was like a carbon element back then, in one that you spoke into. And the other one, I had the speaker. And then I had built a wire, like a physical wire, like a piece of, like a push rod from an RC car that would allow you to take it off hook by switching it from like AM to FM. So you turn the <laughs> dial and the wire inside actually made the, made the connection to dial it. And then there was like hidden behind the flap in the back was the actual rotary dial, right? So it just looked like a radio with a set of headphones. And, yeah. um, you know, friends would be over and we'd be like in playing a board game or something. And the phone would ring and I would reach over and I would <laughs> hold one headphone to my mouth and the other one up to my ear and like switch it to FN and be like, hello. And they'd be like, what? are you doing? Because um, I had this, this phone like rebuilt into this old radio. That was, that was a fun, awesome. fun repurposing that, that caught people off guard. That's awesome. Tanda, you watched a lot of James Bond movies, didn't you? I certainly watched James Bond movies for Q. Yeah, that was why I watched uh, James Bond movies. Well, when I think about what skill goes best with electronics, I got to go with design. <laughs> Tom, Get we out. failed. Tanda. Sidebar. Tanda. Sidebar. Sidebar. Tom, sidebar. We've got to take notes. We've I, got to. We've to got say. to write something down, or just one of a, one of the other of us has to agree to take design just by default away from PJ because we've had a we've had a good streak going. And, we did. And, and he did. and he got it in. You know, he sneaked it in. I, he got it past us. I think it needs to be you. I mean, I already. I already take a hit on the first segment where I just don't do research. So to take it on the third segment, I I, I think you need to take this one. Okay, I'll I'll try to remember. I mean, Fair I may enough. I may slip up, but I'll try to remember because otherwise he's just gonna he's just gonna take it. All right, because I really don't want to start doing research just so I can start taking design. That wouldn't, you know, I don't want to do yeah, that. Yeah, no, so. I I hear you. Okay, oh, oh, oh there he is. There he is. He's back. Yep, yeah, yeah. So tell us about design. How does design uh, go hand in hand? How does design figure into electronics? Somebody's got to design those things in order for there to actually be a thing to make. That's that's how they figure it. Brilliant. Out. Yeah. Uh, I can't do it because I'm very bad at designing electronics. I could build anything, but I can't design stuff. So there's got to be somebody with that skill so that I can build the thing that they thought up. Um, the only thing that I'm I'm I could do very very simple circuits, and uh, if you are not familiar with a jewel thief. I highly recommend you YouTube it. It is an incredibly simple circuit that uses an LED and what should be a dead battery, and it will pull out what little electricity is left in there and uh, turn on an LED. And I, uh, at one point, was so big into researching what was actually happening in this process that I started collecting... Uh, <laughs> I still have them. I have several toolboxes full of electrical components, a lot of toroid magnets, or toroid, uh, ferrite toroids. They're not magnets. Transformers? Toroid they're not transformers. transformers. They're just, they're just ferrite oh, uh, just, toroids. Yeah, yeah and, ferrite uh, inductors. Yeah, just the little donuts that are wrapped with wire, mm -hmm. and you need those in order to make a jewel thief. And I was experimenting with how many wraps around the toroid would give you um, 
more or less light or extend that. You know, I was just experimenting for quite some time. Anyway, the bottom line is it's a fun little project. Little kids can do it. Uh, you don't even need to solder. You can actually like just twist the wires together. It's only like, I want to say maybe five components total. It's And they're very easy to get. So um, that's that's the extent of my electrical design. And now it's time for Ask Old Oswald. Ask me what? Who are you? Back by popular demand, because for some reason, everybody seems to love old Oswald. Welcome back, Oswald. Yeah, sure. So we've got a, a menagerie of questions. People have all kinds of things to ask you. Uh, I'll start it off. We've got something from Sigma Woodcraft, and it says, Dear Oswald, what was the first thing you remember making? You mean the first thing I ever made since I was alive? I, I, I guess that's I guess that's what his question is. What was, what was the first thing you remember making? Uh, probably a peanut butter and jam sandwich. Yeah, well, I'm about maybe five. Uh, how did it turn out? It was tasty. I, I ate the whole thing. Uh, okay. Yeah. I can't really argue with that. Uh, T Tanda, do you have a question for, for Oswald here? Yeah, I have a question. comes in from uh, Crafty Old Winch. It says, hi, Oswald. Can I borrow a hundred bucks? Hey, wait a minute there. That, that's that lady that wanted to take me out on a date. Now, now she's asking for money. She's one of them, some one of them, uh, them, them precious metal diggers. Yeah. She's, she's a gold digger. Yeah. I'm on to you, lady. No, you can't have any of my... My wife would kill me. She knew I was giving out cash. That's, that's a terrible thing to ask somebody. I'm, I'm on to you. That, uh, do we need to have some kind of like a filtering process to pre prevent gold diggers from getting to Oswald? I don't, I don't, I don't know. No, I think maybe I think maybe that was a test. And Oswald did did yeah, quite well. well. I think his wife would be proud of him. Well, you probably add that to the algorithm. I, I've got a question from. Um, yeah, I don't know that name. Why don't, why don't you why don't you spell it out for him, Tom? Because he's not going to understand. Yeah, it. S S H I S E I J I. I'm not going to attempt it. I don't want to embarrass anybody including myself, 1958. Hey, Oswald, I assume you have a telephone on the farm. Do you have electricity? What's the newest labor-saving device you have? Does it run on electricity? Have you ever bought your wife a labor-saving device? That's a lot of questions. Yeah. I don't know. What was the first one? Uh, do you have electricity? Well, the, yeah, we have electricity. I mean, you know, we we have to have lights and TV, and you know, we got a lot of electric appliances. We've had electricity out on the farm for probably about uh, I don't know, maybe eighty years. Yeah, a long time. What was what was there? There was more stuff. I don't remember. What, what? Yeah, well, he's asking about um a labor-saving device. Do you have any labor-saving device? Devices? Have you ever bought a labor labor saving device for your wife? Um, 
I don't know about any devices. Pretty much everything I've done to my wife put her into labor. So you know we have you know we have a lot of kids. So there was not really a, a way to save her from having to go through the labor. You know I think that's one of the burdens women have to face. You know they're going to go through childbirth. I don't want to get too personal and ask how many kids you have, but maybe you could just put it in terms of like the ratio between how many dogs you've had to how many kids you have. Maybe you could give us a ratio and give us a ballpark of how many kids you have. You, you don't remember that I have 14 children? I, I talked about this. No, you've said that before? Yeah, I think when the first time I was on there, on talking. Yeah, 14, 14 children. I, 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 I do lose count to how many grandchildren I have. It seems like they keep multiplying, but you know, they're, they're, uh, they're out there. Uh, but yeah, fourteen. I saw the my, my wife. She did at least the fourteen labors. But the, like I said, there was there was no way to save her from it. I don't. I think that's a question for a doctor. Fair enough. I I, I don't think that's a. We're we're not going to have any doctors on Oswald. But I don't I don't know if that's what he really meant. Was, was there more to that question, Tom? Uh, no. Well, we did we did have another listener suggest uh, a possible uh, labor saving device called a called a c-section but uh i i suppose your wife hasn't uh haven't hasn't had one of those we we don't live near the sea we're we're farm folk so i don't i don't know what section of the country maybe uh one of the coastal areas that that's exactly what he meant there yeah, yeah. pretty pretty uh, sure that's that's yeah, what I he meant so. yeah uh I, so uh uh did did you want to take the next one tanda yeah, I'll take the next one. It's from a Universal Woodworker, and the question is simply, uh, where does a woodchuck chuck all his wood? He's talking about them varmints. I don't like them things. They're always digging around and messing things up. I don't know what they do, and I don't care. I get my shotgun and I shoot them. Oh, do you have a, do you have a problem with woodchucks on the farm? Darn tootin'. Well, I should say I used to have a problem. <laughs> there ain't many left, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh. I have a follow-up. Where does where does an Oswald chuck all of his woodchucks? Well, yeah, chuck them right into the pan and my wife cooks them up. That's why I chuck them there. They're mighty tasty. Oh, a wood, woodchuck chuck roast. That's Interesting. right. Interesting. A chuck roast stew and a... And chuck sandwiches, uh, and a little bit of chuck a sea. That's that's fricassee with a woodchuck, you know. And some. Don't forget my favorite, pit barbecued. Oh yeah, pit barbecued woodchuck. That's the best. You leave the fur on, it gives you that extra flavor. <laughs> Making me hungry. We we just have one more from uh, I two pi. Uh, what do you prefer, Oswald or Oswalt? I don't understand the question. Anyone ever call you Oswald? Who's Oswald? I don't know. Is this person mentally unstable? You're not. You're not. You're not Oswald, right? You're Oswald. I'm Oswald. I don't know who this other guy is. He he wants to talk to, but it's not me. Yeah. Well, there's there's some infamous infamous Oswalds out there. So maybe uh you know maybe there are a few that Oswalds that changed their name. No relation. I don't know anything about that. Okay. I, I think he was inferring that maybe a nickname, Oswald. Does, does, does there any nicknames that anybody knows you by other than, than your, your first name? Oh, yeah. I've, 
I've had many nicknames over the years. <laughs> do, you, do you want to tell us any any of the nicknames that people have called you? Oh, let me see. It's been a long time since I thought about that. Uh, most of them people have died. Uh, oh, man, let me see. Uh, my cousin Frankie, he used to call me Holyo. Holyo? That was his name? The, or, or the name he had for you was Holy O, like like a O from a church? Oh, uh, no, no, I'm sorry. It was, uh, like like, uh, like the, 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 the Spanish people. The... You mean Julio? Yeah, yeah, that, that's what he, he used to say that to me all the time. He thought it was hilarious. I, I, didn't, I didn't find it that funny. Um, okay. Was, was your cousin Spanish? No. He just thought it was hilarious. Okay. Uh, were, were there any other nicknames from, uh, from anybody else? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I had a good buddy of mine when I was growing up. His name was Butchie. And uh, he, for some reason, used to call me Duke. I don't know why it had nothing to do with me. He just thought it was hilarious. He'd call me Duke. And then he always said that my middle name was Edward. And I didn't like that either because my, my, that's not my name. At all. So, so wait a minute. He was calling you Duke E. That that's. I think I see where this is going, Oswald. Well, if you could figure it out, I'd appreciate it because I never understood why he was laughing so hard all the time. He kept calling me Duke Edward, and I just, I just, just started ignoring him. It's it's probably better you don't know. That's um. Uh, let's let's leave it at that. Uh, do do either of you have any other questions for Oswald? No, thanks for coming on, Oswald. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, good to hear you again, Oswald. Yeah, sure, okay. Yeah, have a good night. I think we might have tuckered old Oswald out. I need a nap. All right, it's time for short and sweet. Tom, you got anything to end the show? Yeah. Tanda did that commercial in one take off the top of her head. She said she wrote down a couple of those, the, the names, but that was, that was impressive. That was smooth and well done. Well done. Unfortunately, that commercial will be about 45 minutes before you actually say that, Tom, so nobody's going to understand what that means. I got nothing. Okay, Tanda, <laughs> do you have anything to wrap up the show? <laughs> well, I think, I think you could, uh, you could probably, uh, <laughs> edit the commercial to be really bad and then leave Tom's comments in and then it will just make no sense whatsoever. You know, because he'll be saying she just did the commercial. It'll be totally out of context. And uh, I didn't say she just did it. Oh, okay. It sounded that way. Though. Yeah. I, I'm going to leave it at the end just, just to be confusing. <laughs> yeah, fair um, enough. One thing that I was going to put, and I, I, I have the book here, is uh, I had referred to you know, some of the antics of the early people experimenting with electricity. And if you're into kind of invention and the history of electronics and, and electricity, this is a great book. And I've mentioned it a few times on my Instagram. So if you follow me, you may have heard me talk about it before, but it's called Much Ado About Almost Nothing. So kind of a play on Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing. And the subtitle is Man's Encounter with the Electron. And it starts out from, you know, like the ancient Greeks and, and little pieces of 
fur or lint being attracted to amber and goes all the way through um, modern day semiconductor and microcontrollers. But it's it's not the dry reading that you would think it would be. It's a lot of stories of the interplay between these inventors and kind of some of the backstabbing and some of the weird things they tried and a little more about some of their personal lives and stuff and what caused them to go into it, into electronics and stuff. So it's it's interesting if you're interested in uh, in electronics or just kind of a good history of technology. I, I got to admit, when we started this podcast today, I didn't think I was going to be hearing about lint-covered amber. That's uh, it's definitely yeah. a new one for me. Uh, as for me, I went to Brooklyn this week, unexpectedly. Well, sort of expectedly. Somebody called and paid me to go, but... I was two days in Brooklyn, hadn't been there in a couple years, and is there's a lot of surprises along the way. Uh, I hadn't been through the Holland Tunnel in quite some time, and uh, last time I was through there, it was about maybe, let's say, 10 lanes of traffic with uh, booths to pay to get in. And when I went through, there was just three wide lanes, and there were no booths, and it didn't even look like there was an easy pass, which I found kind of interesting. I'm Halfway wondering if they charged me for going in. You will be getting a little thing in the mail soon and a way to pay. You can actually go online. You can go online now. Just, I don't know what the website is, but you can plug in your license plate and just pay the pay the thing now. It's not a fine. It's a fee. I have an easy pass, so they should just charge the easy pass. Oh, it should have hit you. Yeah. Oh, it got <clears> you. But I didn't see anything. That's what I'm saying. Like all the other easy passes that I went through, I've, I've seen something that grabbed like my information. I didn't see nothing there. It just looked like the entire place had been gutted. And then the other thing I found mm. kind of cool and interesting, I hadn't driven in the city in, like I said, a couple of years. My, I was using my iPhone GPS for navigation. And apparently now in the city, they have traffic lights that have um, speed traps in them. So if you go too fast, they, they clock you and then they give you a ticket. And the iPhone was warning me as I approached certain traffic lights, like you are approaching a 25-mile-per-hour traffic light. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I guess I better slow down. So there was a, several of those things. Um, I've never run into those before. I've run into the red light traffic cams, where if you run a red light, they take a picture of your license plate, but these speed traps brand new thing. And I found it really interesting that it was right on my GPS. Uh, and the other thing that was kind of bizarre, since I haven't been in the city in so long, and especially with COVID, there were triple the amount of bicycle delivery guys on the street in the snow at night. I'm driving in at night. I was driving in probably around like nine o'clock at night. And there were more bicycle delivery guys than there were cars. Like, uh, there was it was I almost felt like they were biker gangs, <laughs> so <laughs> that was interesting. And uh, you know, I had a nice trip. I came back. That's it. Well, that's cool. That's got to be COVID related. That's interesting. Bit bit of electronics trivia. Um, when my firmware business morphed into being a chip programming business, I programmed hundreds of thousands of chips for EasyPass for a company called Transcore mm. that makes a lot of the Toll, toll booth pass equipment. And it's definitely a high volume so, thing where you're putting them on hundreds of thousands of cars. So Tanda, I have, I have a pretty important question, but I think maybe I should just ask you offline about easy pass and programming. 
probably be probably be for the best if we took this discussion off. And that's our show for tonight. That's our show. Thank you everybody for uh, for listening in. And um, uh, please be sure to uh, you know. Uh, there's there's somebody knocking at the door. I think it's the FBI again. <laughs> Uh, we gotta go. We gotta go. Again. So you'd um, be surprised how many times I fielded that uh, that question. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, because people would find out, and you know, it was either uh, it was uh, diesel engine control chips, or it was uh, you know television box chips, or you know, yeah, or the or the easy pass things. And then for a long time, I programmed uh, chips for. Uh, slot machines and occasionally people would be like that's awesome do, do you know how they work <laughs> so yeah seen that question a lot of times that's awesome. thank you for listening to this episode of maker skills if you should need more skill information you can find us on instagram at maker.skills you can also email us at makerskillspodcast at gmail.com you can find me at PJ Galati, son of the junk hunter on Instagram and YouTube. You can find Tanda at Tanda Madison on Instagram. And you can find Tom at Infinite Craftsman on Instagram. We welcome any comments. Please leave us five-star reviews on Apple so that we can make more skill madness come your way. See you next time. And now for some nonsense. So, I found it rather ironic, and I don't want to say in the beginning of the show why we were actually doing electronics as a skill topic, but I found a trade publication, and I know you guys have read it. Uh, apparently, there's um, there's been some electron hoarding going on out in the world, and it's uh, it's causing some problems. Uh, I don't know the extent of, of all the problems, but I know Tanda's a little bit better versed to explain it than I am. Yeah, there's certainly hoarding going on. I didn't. I was totally unaware of this, and I thought I was staying pretty abreast of the of the whole electronics thing. But apparently, uh, there are big companies hoarding electrons, and uh, and it's going to be where young people aren't going to have any electrons to run their stuff anymore if it keeps up. Uh, from what I understood, uh, Gatorade and Powerade are the biggest proponents of storing these electrons for their drinks. Did I read that those, right? Those are electrolytes, Tom. Those, those. That's that's not the same thing. Oh, oh. Uh, I didn't read the article. I'm sorry. I'm not surprised, but <clears throat> it's probably you probably need to because it's going to affect your children. Um, yeah, you, act- you you definitely need to read it because you're 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 sounds like a threat close to the well you're close to the cutoff age yourself being a relative youngster and uh, when they start divvying them up where only certain people get electrons and can use electrons then uh, you could fall below that line where you're not going to get as many as you would want. Well, how do I store them? Like, how do I collect them or find them? I, I mean, I. I could read the article, but it'd be much better if you just explained these things to me. Well, I mean, you can store them in batteries, but, you know, you have mm. to keep charging the batteries and, and then you're going to need electricity. And if it's, you know, if they're in short supply, you know, there are people working on alternatives, but, you know, electrons have been pretty much the, the thing for a while. Tom, haven't you noticed that mm. a lot of the children, like present day children, 
aren't quite acting right. Like they're not acting like how we acted when we were kids. You know, they're doing things a little bizarrely, maybe a little off balanced. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I've got two of them here. And, um, well, they're both sleeping right now, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're always a little peculiar. Um, I, I usually encourage, I, I usually encourage it though. I, you know, I, I want them to think outside the box and do things differently. Is that, is that kind well, of what you're talking A little about? peculiar is, is normal, but if it's an electron deficit, yeah. then, uh, it could be, could be a problem if they've got like an electron deficit disorder. So hold on, let me see here. Amazon.com electron. They're they're not. Oh, you're, they're not. They're not selling them. Medication. No, you can't buy them. Anybody anybody that's sending them in. Well, I'm, no, I'm looking for deficit medication. There isn't any. That's the problem. If, if they don't have them, you can't get more. See, the problem is, I'm just going to come right out and say it. Sony. Sony's one of the biggest proponents. There, they've got underwater capacitor storage banks they're hoarding electrons and there's a couple other companies doing it too it's been unconfirmed apple is doing it dell a lot of the big electronics corporations they're hoarding electrons in these massive underground capacitor storage banks oh, wait, wait, you said underwater are they underwater or underground both they're hiding them everywhere why are they hiding them you know how on the stock market all those rich people, like, they hide their money. Sure. It's the same thing, only with the electrons. See, they're they're trying to starve the next generation of electrons so that the kids aren't going to have enough, you know, juice to think properly. Yeah, but it seems like that they're... I mean, you just put them on... There's plenty of land. Just put it on land and just throw, like, a... I don't know, like an electric fence around it to keep people out. They don't want anybody to know that they're doing it. Oh, no, you don't want to do that because people will be stealing the electrons from the electron fence. You hang the electrons out there in the electron fence, people like you and I who can't oh, get them good, are going to tap into that. That's a good point. Yeah. That's a good point. All right. I see your point. Yeah. No, they're they're doing it. I mean, and there are these big hedge funds that you know are are shorting them and i'm not talking short circuit i'm talking about that's what you do you put hedges you put funds of hedges to around instead of an electric fence that yeah that would work you've got a point there instead of an electric fence you put up some pyracantha or something you're missing the point tom yeah yeah that but one. they but they need the money to buy it they they don't want you to know where it is. That's what I'm trying to say. That's why it's buried underground. It's they don't want anybody to see what they're doing. Like in other words, they don't want people to realize that the reason they're having so many problems is because the amount of electrons has been slowly depleting because they're hoarding them. And it it's yeah. Slowly depleted. So yeah. I mean you can I mean it's gonna be to where if we don't react soon, we won't even be able to see them do it. Because we kinda need electrons to see. Because without electrons, uh, you know, lights stop working very well. You know, any any diodes, any electrons that are being raised up to a higher state and then decaying back down and giving off a photon aren't going to be there. So things are going to get dark. Well, I have a question. So can you, you can't really see electrons, right? Like they're kind of invisible things. Well, you can see their effects. I mean, you get an electron all excited. You get it all. You give it all revved up and excited, and then you know, like a kid on sugar, it's gonna crash. An electron that's been like amped up, when it crashes, 
Yeah. It gives off light, unlike, yeah. a, unlike a kid on a sugar crash. Hmm. All right, but, but you can't really see it. So if we were to find a way to steal some, no one would know we have it. Oh, you're saying we could start hiding our own. We just need to come up with an electron hiding device. Yeah, right. You mean like a battery? That's that might work. That that'd be that'd be that'd be too obvious. Oh yeah. <laughs> Way too obvious. Maybe a battery inside a can of WD-40, and just have like twenty thousand cans. That'd work. But then, if you sprayed the WD-40, it'd electrocute somebody. Well, that backfired quickly. I mean, it'd basically oh, be like yeah. a it'd be like a giant taser, and they'd be oily too. All right. All right. Uh... Potatoes. Yes. We could just start using electricity to grow thousands and thousands of potatoes. And we could sequester all the electrons in potatoes. I thought potatoes had their own electrons. Isn't there videos where people run clocks off potatoes? Everything has their own electrons. That's what I'm saying, So I mean, I don't mean to be negative. Uh, well, I mean, if we put more electrons in a potato, wouldn't it explode? Um, if it would be like an ion potato. I, th- I think you mean Idaho? You know, I just was thinking about it. You know, when a capacitor explodes, it kind of looks like the same thing as when a potato explodes. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Nope. I had one explode in my face. Didn't look anything like a potato. I was very scared. Maybe you had a bad capacitor. You, you should you should start with potatoes. You know, electrolytic capacitors when they when they explode can uh, can be kind of nasty. So it's best to start out when you're just experimenting with electronics with with potatoes. What about lemons? Lemon, lemons are good for electronics. If you have a couple of dissimilar metals, you can poke them in a lemon and power some basic stuff. Hmm. Maybe we could, maybe we could grow lemons, and then we and they're buoyant, so we could, we can't hide them underground or underwater, but we could hide them on the water. We could float them over the top of the undersea electron sequestering. Wait a minute. Wait Boom. a minute. Hold on. I'm getting an Done. idea here. What if we put, what yep. if we put lemons in the water? with little IC chips to detect where the underwater capacitor storage banks are, and then they could all herd around the banks and soak up the electrons. Would that be possible? Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Absorption device electronics, ADE. Yeah, we'll call it lemonade. I like it. I like it. Let's let's get our, our research team on that. We need to put this into effect as soon as possible. Uh, who do we have at Johnson's Hardware that can do this? Uh, Chet, probably. I mean, he's he's done electronic stuff, I think. No, I don't know if I trust Chet. Uh, what about Luke? He seems like he might be able to handle it. Yeah, he's into that sci- science yeah. fiction stuff. What do you do? I, I mean, he used to when he started. I mean, but he's been back in the paint section sniffing paint a lot. So I heard he was good with hydro spanners. I mean, that's that's an electronic thing. I mean, he's he's got to be... He, I, I think that he's better than Chet. Chet doesn't really seem like the guy. I mean, he's, he's you know how he is. He's like the, the mouthpiece of the store. He doesn't really do anything. Luke could definitely help out. I mean, he's pretty much who got us the gig with Johnson's. I mean, he he's a stand-up guy. All right, let's, uh, Tom, I want you to get in touch with Luke, tell him what we need, and okay. put a rush on it. We need as many of these electro lemonade things as possible. Done. All right. Well, not done. I'll, I'll do it. And then it'll be done. But you, yeah, okay, go ahead. I'll start buying lemons. Perfect. I'll I'll get a bunch of glasses and start freezing some ice cubes. I think that's all we need. All right, we'll reconvene next week. (laughs) That was totally ridiculous.